what is the first thing uh, that a parent can do if they feel that they have a child that might be exhibiting some of these behaviors and where they know that that child has an opportunity to maybe be alleviated from some of those symptoms? What's the first thing that they should do? I think if you're just getting started, really the fundamentals are food. You know, cut sugar out, cut preservatives out, cut food colorings out. Make sure they're eating wholesome foods that don't disrupt their blood sugar. And that alone may change, you know, 10, 20% of the picture, sometimes more. Sometimes it changes the entire picture. So I think at, at a core foundational level, start with food. And then, you know, from there, then you can get into all of the really details of sleep and tongue ties and mold and gut issues and mitochondria and so forth. But nutrition is foundational. And I'd say, you know, at the very least, just start with the very basics. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Riche, and on today's episode, we have an amazing human. He is somebody that works with kids and he is building resiliency in children all across North America and particularly in California. Dr. Peshman Katirayi is a board certified physician who's also trained in integrative and holistic medicine. So you all know how much we appreciate that because of the fact that so many of us put our physicians on pedestals. They go to med school, they study from anywhere from, you know, six to 10, 11 years, and they graduate. And, you know, because of society, we have said, you know what, doctors know it all, but that is actually furthest from the truth. We put so much pressure on doctors to be able to try and figure out everything there is to figure out about our life. But one of the major contributors to our poor health, especially today more than ever, is our lifestyle. So doctors are no longer doing house calls, coming into your home, checking to see what's in your fridge and how you shop and what the different ways that you cook. You know, doctors barely even get the opportunity to touch your skin and feel if it's clammy or sweaty or hot or cold. You know, they don't often look into your eyes to see, you know, if your pupils are dilated or look at your tongue to see if there's a buildup of, you know, extra, you know, material and mucus. You know, those days are really far behind us because doctors have so much pressure to pump patients through the door. They have seven and a half minutes to be, you know, to try and diagnose and prescribe and treat and get you out the way before they have to sit there and fill out all the insurance forms that they are having to fill out just so that they can get paid. It is not a glamorous, easy job. But one of the things that we can do is we can actually just take our physicians off the pedestal and take responsibility for our own health. And that is something that I love about any practitioner that has studied both Western medicine and Eastern medicine, allopathic medicine and alternative medicine. It's because any physician that has gone above and beyond to do that, they don't have to do that. They don't have to spend their money and time studying alternative health and and other Eastern philosophies. But when they do, man, you are seriously 
it's going to change your life because this is going to be a doctor who looks at you and your body as one complete system and one system that is integrated into the complexities of your life, nobody else's life, but your life. And this is what Dr. Peshman Katirai does, otherwise known as Dr. K. So he completed his undergraduate at UCLA, and then he went on and he obtained his osteopathic medical degree at Western University of Health sciences. From there, he went on to complete a pediatric residency at Loma Linda University, an incredible university that's just doing such progressive studies and research. So definitely look at the research that's coming out of Loma Linda. And then he went on and he stayed um, teaching uh, on the teaching faculty for over four years. So Dr. Ketirayu, without, you know, spoiling everything that we're going to learn in this podcast, he's going to teach you how he and his clinic build resilient kids. And right now, more than ever in 2021, that is what every single parent, every single teacher, any single community leader needs to be focusing on is how do we raise holistic kids, resilient kids. And in fact, that's the name of Dr. K's work and clinic, holistic kids. So let's dive into the podcast with him. I don't want to jump in ahead of myself because you're going to be learning so much. And I truly cannot wait for the borders to open so that you can bring your child, if they're suffering from chronic illnesses, mental health conditions, if they're suffering from anything and everything, please make sure that you get on Dr. K's waiting list and you get him to help you and your family because he'll be able to help you reclaim your own health, your child's health, and really be able to get you back to living the beautiful, amazing life that you were born to live. Now, before we dive into this podcast just yet, I want to make sure that you head on over to our website at nicoletteriche.com or 22million.ca or richerhealth.ca. You know, we have lots of sites out there. Everything is in the show notes. And we had launched an incredible program this summer called Get Off Your Fat Ass. That's right. I want you all to get off your fat asses. And when we're talking about fat, this is what we mean. We mean that you are fabulous. You are amazing. You are authentically you. And most importantly, you have the power to transform your health, to transform your life, and to really rebuild your body into one of 2000 different versions that you are capable of transforming yourself into. Isn't that amazing? Dr. Zach Bush says 2000 different versions of yourself you can create simply based on the decisions that you make today. So without further ado, get on that waiting list and let's dive into this show right now with Dr. K. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and on today's show, I am very excited to welcome Dr. Pejman Katirayi. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. It's always exciting for me to um, interview doctors that work with kids, especially because right now we have, you know, a you know, millions of kids in North America that have been born post 1986, post 
the era of like mass pesticide use where we have so many chemicals going into our environment that are untreated or that are not well tested and we're just gonna we're just getting inundated with these you know environmental stressors coupled with all of the digital technology that our kids are being raised in and I, you know, I liked following, you know, theories of psychologists and other medical doctors and practitioners out there that often talk about these cumulative stress disorders. So it's these micro stressors that are on our systems. And as adults, we may or may not be able to manage them well, but what about the kids that are being born into this world? And I just know that so many of them need a physician like you. So let's start with that. And I know I'm just coming in with guns blazing, but I think it's really important to talk about this because you deal a lot with kids who have neurological disorders, they have ADHD, other mental health disorders. And what are you seeing now, you know, in 2021 that, you know, you might not have been seeing a decade ago? Well, great question. Also a pretty complex question. Um, You know, I I think there are the obvious things, you know, for instance, one of the things that that is really coming to, I think that the country's and world's attention is, you know, this pediatric neuropsychiatric kind of acute onset syndrome where these kids are basically losing it. Mm -hmm. And they're aggressive for no reason. I mean, some of them, these poor kids are basically being labeled as, you know, psychotic and they're being put on antipsychotics. Um, some of these kids are getting the diagnosis of autism or autism spectrum, uh, but their their entire neurological manifestation makes no sense. And it, it's truly puzzling. And it's, I think, becoming much more of a problem than what we ever knew before. And you know, some people would say, well, is it just that we're becoming more aware of it? And, you know, I think along the lines of the autism spectrum, we, we now know that, you know, autism spectrum and, you know, these are normal type of kids. They look at you, they talk to you, they're, they're able to socialize with you, but they're literally unable to just regulate themselves. And when we look at the data, what we find is that, you know, a decade or two ago, let's say a decade ago, when you know our diagnostic standards hadn't changed that much from now, there has been a noticeable increase in the presentation of these things. But it's not just that we we are seeing you know increased rates of atopy. Uh, one of the things that's really irking me as a general pediatrician, and I wear two hats in my practice. I'm the general pediatrician that just sees cute little kids grow up. And, you know, I see them from birth onwards. And then also the diagnostician or the consultant where, you know, about 30% of what I do is deal with the, you know, I call them lovingly my train wrecks. Uh, I see the kids where literally everyone else throws up their hands and like, I don't know what's going on with your child. Good luck, you know, and it's, they've seen like five or 10 doctors and they've you know, have half the patients that have the means have literally traveled the country going from doctor to doctor, hoping to find an answer. So I'm also the guy that these families reach out to. And, you know, there's the consultant side where I see these, you know, cases that are really troubling. But then as the general pediatrician, there's one thing that uh, is coming to light. And uh, there's a group at Stanford actually looking at this. And that's actually the manifestation of tongue ties. 
we, we don't really, as, as an outward community, we don't look at things like this. But in, in, if you go talk to the people who live in this world, and we're, we're not talking, you know, the hokey uh, person in their clinic that has no degrees. We're talking like Stanford researchers. Uh, the, the Stanford researchers are saying that, no, there's actually an epidemic of tongue ties and the rates of ankyloglossia, the rates of tongue ties have has gone up exponentially in a way that we never saw before. And I mean, I'm definitely smarter at identifying things like this than before, but I can say just even in the last few years, like before, maybe one out of every five kids, maybe one out of every 10 kids would be born and they would have feeding issues and latching issues and trouble feeding and those things, which are part of what's indicative of a tongue tie. And I, I mean, I hate to say this, I, I'd say a quarter of the kids that I see uh, have these same issues. And ultimately when we send them to someone who's highly trained, pretty much all of these kids are having tongue ties. And it's not just because we're shooting at, you know, doing procedures. I, I, I use people who are actually very conservative. So a lot of times they're like, Nope, go home. You don't have it. But these very conservative people are actually saying that, no, the, these kids are having tongue ties, which is why they're having trouble feeding and they're having trouble latching and they're colicky and they won't sleep. And there's all of this irritability. And when you start asking around, like you see like, oh my God, like, no, there are a lot of these babies that have that. And, you know, these are in a way, the silent epidemics, it, it's, I, I hate to use this word because I don't, I, I don't believe in the fear-based model of thinking and that's not how i or our family lives but there is there are these silent epidemics that that's unfolding underneath our noses and we we are simply just I, I not ignoring them but we don't know to even recognize that these things are there so much as they're happening and so much that their rates have increased in these ways well, it's interesting that you use the word epidemic because I use it all the time in reference to chronic disease like diabetes and heart disease and autoimmune disorders. You know, we see infertility now um, rising up uh, to these to these you know increased numbers that are are quite scary. Um, but and again, my family, you know, we don't want to be fear based. But I mean, it, sometimes facts are just facts. Numbers are just numbers, right? And um, so just go back a little bit and explain, because I know a lot of our audience and our listeners, you know, are parents that are about to have babies, they have young kids, but explain um, what tongue tie is, what causes it potentially, the theories behind it, and then what, how it's being managed or yeah. treated. Yeah, so I mean, a, a, a very easy way to look at tongue tie is imagine you're sitting on a chair and your hands are shackled to the chair and you try to lift up your arms, but you can't because you're, you're cuffed, you're shackled to the chair and you keep trying and ultimately you can't. So actually are unable to move your arms or limbs physically. Uh, the tongue should easily be able to be stuck out of the mouth and it should be able to easily be elevated where if the mouth is open, so for those of you listening, imagine you open your mouth and you should be able to, with your mouth fully open, have the tip of your tongue touch all the way to the roof of your mouth. When you look, there are a significant number of individuals, kids and adults, that, that actually are unable to do that. And how this translates into real life is when you look at what the tongue does, 
The tongue does so much in our mouth. Babies need the tongue to suckle. It's part of what creates that movement in the mouth that then creates nice suction and ultimately allows them to have a very effective latch. So some moms will say like, God, my, my baby just won't latch. And either they, they get they get on the breast, but their suckling is not very good. So sometimes their, their latch is okay, but they're just not getting much milk. And it's not because mom's supply is bad. It's because baby doesn't know how to pull that milk out. Mm-hmm. So you get all of these weird manifestations early on. And this is despite doing lactation consultation and doing all of this hard work, the baby just doesn't feed very well. And sometimes we have moms who have really good milk supplies. So the milk is just pouring out, but then around two or three months, all of a sudden, like the baby stops losing weight. Why? Because baby just had milk gushing down their mouth. And now all of a sudden, when they have to work for it, they don't know how. So these are subtle, subtle early signs. A lot of these babies are very colicky, we call them. So they don't, they, they can't ever go into a deep relaxation state, you know, Babies normally, they feed, they cry for a second, they they get satiated, they knock out, sleep for three or four hours, get up and do it again, right? These babies are in this constant state of hypervigilance, fight flight. And one of that is because they're never transferring milk efficiently, so they don't get that milk coma. If you get into the you know interesting worlds of osteopathy and craniosacral and some of these other worlds, what what you find is that that constant pulling of the tongue because must the tongue is a muscle, right? And that muscle keeps pulling on the back of the neck. And there's this fascia we call it, which is this elastic tissue that basically, when it's there, when there's a tongue tie. That, that shackling is now this muscle pulling on these shackles and these, these shackles actually happen to be connected to the back of our neck. So a lot of these babies from the best way we understand, not that we've gotten an interview, you know, two week olds and said, Hey baby, you know, like, well, what are you feeling there? Are, are you having neck pain? You know, <laughs> babies can't really answer that. But one of the things that's really interesting is in these babies, there's this constellation of issues. So feeding issues, poor latch, uh, and then also just this colicky baby that you can't console. A lot of times what parents find is when the tongue is released by, by someone that knows what they're doing, and then all of a sudden the baby has an adjustment by a chiropractic, craniosacral person, osteopath, whomever, all of a sudden, a week or two later, they're like, oh my God, my colicky baby is now sleeping. Oh my God, I have a different baby. Why? Because they were able to finally feed more efficiently. And also just that tension that was in their back of their neck is gone. And these are little things that we don't you know, pay attention to. We just say, well, well, some babies are colicky, right? Some babies just cry for four hours every day and it's just kind of what is, right? And I, I think you know, part of why I love doing what I'm doing and why you know I actually got drawn into this world of integrative medicine is I did not find it satisfactory to just say, well, things just happen. You know, some babies just cry for four hours a day. We don't know why, but they just do. Some babies have horrible eczema and we just cover their skin, but it's just, it's just what happens. Nothing just happens. There is no thing that is just coincidental. There is no thing that just happened, you know, coincidentally happenstance occurs. Everything has a reason. Everything that shows up in a child happens because of something. Now, sometimes those 
some things aren't worth asking because the energy you spend trying to look for it, you know, the parents are like, should I be worried about this? I'm like, no, you know, running down this rabbit hole is not worth your time and energy. And at the end of the day, it won't matter. But your kid cried for four or five hours for the first three months of their life probably matters, right? Like it, it's not a fun scenario. So it's, it's looking at these things and, you know, you talk so much, you know, about the impact of food and nutrition and all of these things, right? Well, think about it. What happens in a scenario where the child, the baby, has their tongue attached to the base of their mouth so that they don't know how to use their tongue? And then let's say that kid grows up and now they're the one or two-year-old. What do you think happens to their ability to eat? What? It's, it's tough. I mean, your tongue is there to taste and sense the world. And, you know, we know from neuroscience studies that we can even smell through our tongue when your nose isn't working and vice versa. And so, yeah, if your tongue is not able to do the, you know, tens of thousands of functions that it's designed to do, I mean, are you going to appreciate the complexity of those flavors of foods? Probably not. I'm assuming. Probably right? not. Yeah. And think about mastication. So t- chewing is a horribly complex process we take for granted because i mean most of us do it without thinking right the same way we can walk the same way we talk the same way we do all of these very complicated things is also the same way we look at chewing chewing is a very complicated motor task and when the tongue is actually disabled it's it's attached chewing actually becomes very difficult so a lot of times what we see is this very specific pattern. Kids don't breastfeed. They're super colicky early on. You know, newborn periods are a mess. Half these kids end up on formula because the moms just give up. And then when they're three, all of a sudden you've got these extreme picky eaters. So mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, pizza, plus or minus, and one other food. And, you know, we just say, well, that's kind of what happens. You know, some kids are just picky eaters. Some kids just don't eat vegetables. Some kids don't do this. But then when you put their history together, all of a sudden it's like, oh, Jesus, like this kid never knew how to eat. And what we're seeing as the three-year-old version of the baby is actually the same human being with the same limitations and the same difficulty that is now showing itself in a different way. And uh, I mean, you've had some really impressive people on your podcast, so I'm sure you guys have gotten into, you know, conversations about what happens when all you eat is gluten, dairy, gluten, dairy, and it's not to shame gluten or dairy, but what happens when there isn't one vegetable in the child's diet? What happens when there's not one clean protein and it's just sugar and fat, sugar and fat, sugar and fat, it disrupts the entire system, right? Well, this is the part that um, I hear this from a lot of parents because they ask me like, you know, how do you get your kids to eat vegetables? Like all three of my girls, they work in our restaurants. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have full plant-based whole food restaurants and, you know, they get in there and they can, like you say, make a soup and they'll make a soup with 15 ingredients and they know how to season it and flavor it. And, you know, in my youngest, she's 10 and for sure she's, you know, we'll call her the picky eater, but I mean, she will eat almost anything on any given day. She might not feel like eating it every single day. So I, but, but part of that is that, you know, A, they were not tongue tied when they were babies. 
they latched great. I mean, I consider myself a very lucky mom um, in the sense that, you know, I didn't have these things happening. And so they got to experience and love the complex, you know, the complexity of all of the different foods we were bringing to the house. But I do have a lot of parents that ask me, they're like, how do I get my kids to eat this way? They will only eat mac and cheese. Um, and now hearing this piece, because in all the discussions I've had with other physicians and you know none of them have really brought up this tongue-tied piece which you do remind me of an ex that I had as an adult who was tongue-tied as well and you know a brilliant soul amazing but again with him as well it makes me think about his relationship to food and it makes me wonder if you know for the previous 40 years if that was the battle that he was having so I want to go back to one piece before I also the other piece I'm thinking about is their ability to even just communicate and speak as well, because obviously your tongue is so needed mm -hmm. in that. But going back, you did mention, you know, osteopathy, um, chiropractic care. Um, there, you know, there's a number of different practices, which even as I mentioned chiropractic care, I know there's people listening who are saying like, I've never been to a chiropractor. I don't even know what that is. So how does that help with kids that are tongue tied for the, you know, members out there that are listening who might not know that there are perhaps non-surgical um, treatments for tongue tied? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you have a true, true tongue tie, uh, you can't therapy your way out of it. Okay. You can do things to release the tension in the tissue. So look at it like this. Heavens forbid someone gets in a car accident, right? And your car, someone plows into your car, let's say. Imagine all that force coming into the car, which crumples the back of the car. That force goes into our body, right? And a lot of times we don't really consider what these forces do to the body itself. Um, I mean, I, I recall, uh, God, thank God this was many, many years ago. It was over 10 years ago. We were in a really bad car accident and within 12 hours, 12, 24 hours, like my entire body hurt, my neck, my back, you know, everything Jesus, was just right a up. hot mess. And I, I literally couldn't move. Like literally I, I couldn't turn my neck. Like I couldn't, you know, turn my back and it was just constant pain. Now, when you look at the body, what holds the body together? It's not the muscles. The muscles move the body, but the bones and everything, they're ultimately connected to each other with this saran wrap kind of elastic tissue. It's called fascia. Fascia is this saran wrap that basically it keeps all of our body together. Without fascia, we would be one big blob with some bones and muscles all like in a blob, literally. But our, our structure is held together by these elastic bands. And these elastic bands, fortunately or unfortunately, are very forgiving. So if, if let's say you get socked in the face, you know, or you're playing football and someone tackles you, that force goes into the body and we kind of roll with that force, but we forget that that force went into the body and now went into the fascia and actually distorted the fascia in a way where now there's a, we call it a torsion or, a, so it's basically like a torque. There, there's a, a spin that goes into it. There's a twist that goes into it is maybe the best way to look at it. And sometimes that twist releases on its own. And sometimes it doesn't. In, in the case of that bad car accident we had a while ago, like those twists went into my body and they were just there. 
And I basically, you know, reached out to one of my friends and I was like, Hey, buddy, can you help me please? I'm a hot mess. And he's like, yeah, sure. Come on in. And imagine a very highly capable form of massage is really the best way to look at this. You know, chiropractors kind of pop joints. I'm sure we've all, you know, heard or seen or had that done. And, you know, sometimes it's great, but what these folks do, the cranial sacral therapists, and sometimes chiropractors do this, osteopaths do this, they're not popping anything per se. What they're doing is they're actually using small amounts of force, and it almost looks like complete voodoo when you look at it, but they're using small amounts of force to actually unwind that tension, that twist within the tissue. And it's crazy when, when they do it, like within one session after an hour and a half of work, like the next day I woke up and it's as if I had no pain, no aches, no anything. It was, it was amazing. And I, I've seen this with hundreds of my patients. So what these folks can do is basically if the tongue, let's say, is pulling on the fascia that's in the back of the neck and these little babies, we presume, we don't know, but we presume that they have this constant achiness to them. A lot of times these people can go in there and release the tension that is coming from that tongue, tongue constantly pulling. Uh, things work even better when you actually release the tongue. So the tongue itself now has normal mobility, so it's not shackled down. And then you go and release whatever is there from the tongue tie and everything. And then you almost get like this double benefit, which then usually results in a happy kid. That's amazing. So would that, would that release happen through a surgery then? The tongue tie? Yeah. Usually yeah. a surgery is required. Yeah. And it's, it's reminding me of a friend of mine and her son uh, was born three weeks before my daughter and um, he would projectile vomit all the mm -hmm. time and he would arch his back constantly. And he would just, he was colicky. It was all of these wonderful things. Um, that make it so hard to know how to, you know, lovingly parent the child, like this child who's screaming nonstop. And that's exactly what she did. She took him to a chiropractor who knew about active release and like really had studied extensively um, about releasing fascia and um, also to a cranial sacral therapist. And, and it was magical to watch mm -hmm. his treatment because his whole body, just like you said, how it gets torqued into a position. Well, um, what they figured is through the birth as well is that he had been stuck in one position for so long in the birth canal because she was in a 36 hour labor. And so all the muscles and everything had seized and probably the fascia as well. And so when they re when she when the practitioner released this, he actually went into the same position that he was in in the birth canal and then unwound out of that. And then after wow. that, the projectile vomiting stopped, the the um, the colicky uh, nature stopped, stopped the screaming, the crying. He was able to latch. He was able to feed. And so. It is really important. And we had talked about this just before I hit record was that, you know, in so many cases, we have to keep looking because there's going to be a solution. And for, you know, and, you know, we're talking about the book that's on my shelf, which is also on your shelf, um, which is all about mold and, and, you know, other irritants in our environment but we can, you know, it's to remind people, don't stop looking for a solution. Don't accept 
certain things to be just the way it's going to be and that you just have to battle your way through it when you know there's so many incredible competent people out there and even if your one physician is saying that's just normal it's okay give the baby Tylenol which I've heard so many physicians tell my clients and their babies uh, to do for their babies when you know that's there's there's other solutions yeah. out there. Yeah. And you've just mentioned, you know, three incredible solutions with is a, a very savvy chiropractor, craniosacral therapist, or, um, and you also talked about an osteopath as well. Yeah. So yeah, no, I thank you for sharing that. There is, um, I have, I'm really curious, um, just wanting to get into how did you get into all of this? Because you were trained, you know, uh, just as every other medical doctor was trained, every other physician physician was trained, but how did you get into integrative healthcare and integrative medicine? I, I think to answer that, as you asked that, I, I had a flashback. So I was, I think, six years old, six, oh, wow. somewhere, somewhere around six to eight years of age. And my, my parents came into the living room and they saw me with the screwdriver unscrewing the back of the TV. And th this is back in the days when we had the cathode raid, you know, with like tens of thousands of volts, you know, behind the TV. And like, there I am like unscrewing it. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, I want to see how it works. You know, it's like, to me, it was like logical. Like, why would you not want to know like how this like picture appears, right? And, you know, I think that curiosity never really left me. And to this day, you know, it's, it's always like, I want to see how it works, you know, like, like, what is going on deep in this child system that is causing them to be that way. And I think, well, to first kind of preface what I'm going to say, I think a lot of times in medicine, we encourage physicians to let go of their curiosity. Mm -hmm. A lot of times physicians are told, well, this is how things are. This is the right answer. This is the standard of care. And because this is the standard of care, this is the end of the line. You know, I look at things as we should all follow the standard of care because th that's kind of the minimum bar that everyone should set for themselves. But the standard of care is kind of, I mean, in certain times, the standard of care is awesome because it, it, it pro provides safety. It makes sure things aren't missed. It makes sure that, you know, some things don't get screwed up. So I'm not saying, I'm not questioning the standard of care. But what I am saying is, a lot of times what I hear from, you know, physicians that I know as friends that they've kind of resigned to say, well, this is just how things are. This is just what is, and this is just what we have to do. And to me, it's like, well, gosh, no, like to me, that's, that's just the start. And I think part of why I find myself really fortunate and, you know, every day I count my blessings to be able to do what I do is, you know, to me, it, my practice is, is like one, I get to deal with fantastic people whom I love interacting with. And I love, you know, just being a part of their lives and they appreciate me having a part of their lives, but more so we get to have fun. We just ask these weird questions and, you know, like, kids show up with something and I'll tell them like, Hey, we could do this. We could do this. We could do this. We could do nothing. What do you want to do? And they're like, let's do it. You know, I'm like, cool. You know? And then we just run down these rabbit holes and it, it has been my patience 
it, my patients have been really my greatest teachers. They have been the ones that have opened my eyes. You know, sometimes they bring me information. They're like, hey, what do you think about this? I'm like, damn, I didn't know that even existed. Let me check it out. And then, you know, sure enough, like that opens my eyes. And then I start looking into other things. And then this, this cascade of events unfold. But to go back to your question of how did I end up where I am? So, you know, that curiosity, and I think, you know, for me, science is, is an area that my brain tends to be well geared for. Um, I, I, I knew early on that I liked science and, you know, I liked helping people. And therefore, I thought, well, God, you know, medicine is kind of a good, you know, niche for me because it kind of does both. And when I started school, I found myself really disheartened. Because, you know, everything was kind of like a protocol, right? You memorize this, you do this, and then you do this. And it was just basically you're, you're memorizing complex protocols. And I could feel that curiosity being squashed out of me. And I got to a point where I remember it was my third year of medical school. I, I had decided at the time to actually drop out of medicine and go into healthcare administration. So I had already like literally found an MBA program. I, I was already talking to them to apply for it. And then pediatrics showed up and I had no idea I liked kids at all. And I basically did my first rotation and it was the weirdest thing ever. It was almost like you, you you see those movies where there's like all of a sudden rainbows in the backdrop and like there's a pony running around and there's like this fairy music, you know, usually people are on psychedelics. Uh, for me, it was like uh, there was no drugs involved. It was just being around kids was the coolest thing on the face of the planet. And I was just like, damn, you kids are cool. I like you. And they're like, we kind of like you, too. So it was like this match made in heaven. And Jesus, that was 2002. So it's it's been a minute uh, since I graduated uh, school, and I fell in love with the kids, and they're actually part of what kept me in the practice of medicine. And then I decided to change gears and ended up doing a pediatric residency. And it was in the pediatric residency that my curiosity started coming back. And, you know, I was the weird resident that was asking all of these strange questions of like, well, what about this? What about that? Why, why is this this way? Why is that that way? You know, and my attendings were just kind of humoring me and they're like, there he goes again, you know, asking those silly questions, you know? And I remember having, there was two cases in particular that I, I will never forget. One of them was this, you know, adolescent, sweet uh, Latino guy who was playing football and basically took a slide, had a tiny little cut on his knee, came into the ER later that evening because his knee had gotten red. And within 24 hours, this poor kid died. And basically the bacteria had gotten into his knee, somehow managed to get up his leg into his abdomen and just spread everywhere and took his life. And, you know, all of us were just like, what in God's good earth just happened? You know, and the the docs were just like, well, he just had this bacterial infection and it, it, it killed him. I'm like, wait a second, how many times have I gotten this skin cut and I didn't die? You know, like my knee didn't blow up. Like, what are you talking about? And uh, I remember this other kid, uh, this sweet, also probably 12 to 14 year old uh, boy who had colitis and his intestines were really inflamed 
and he came into the hospital because it was getting really bad. We, we did some IV drips with steroids and medications. He got better, he left, but then a week later he came back because it was even worse. And I, I vividly remember like our, our team got together, the entire senior staff, all the doctors, you know, we had a meeting and they're like, well, he's failed this medication, he's failed this medication, he's failed this medication. So therefore we have to consult surgery for them to take out his colon. Literally it was like, because these medications have failed, we have no other options. And because we have no other options, the next option is surgery. And like that, those two cases happen within a relatively short period of time, like of a few months. And they both hit me like Mack trucks. And it's almost like I got swiped into an alternate reality where I was just like, wait, wait, what? like, how can we be doing this? Like, how can we just say, well, medications don't work. So let's just cut this kid's colon out for the rest of his life and leave him without a colon. And it was in that moment that I really just started saying, well, there has to be another way. Like there has to be another way to look at these things. Like these can't be the only answers. And that then led me to talked to some of my mentors who then suggested I look at, you know, doing some courses in holistic medicine. And, you know, I fell in love with that. And that was, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I've done, you know, an absurd amount of training since then. But one of the things that I've realized over time is a lot of times, whatever model that we're in, whether you're talking to the chiropractor or the Chinese practitioner or the conventional doctor or whomever, everyone for some reason thinks that their model is the best model to treat whatever disease, right? You go to the car, you go to the acupuncturist and you say, Hey, I got, you know, chronic diarrhea and whatever. They will say, well, I will give you this Chinese herb and needle this point And I will try to make you better rather than saying, well, well, you may have mold, you may have this, maybe you have a food intolerance, maybe you've got, you know, imbalances in your gut bacteria. And part of what I've seen over time is that as I've hopped around from one group to another, and it's really been my patients, I've had cases where whatever model that I trained in, you know, I got like obsessed with functional medicine, but then I had a bunch of people that didn't get better. And the gut treatments and the diet treatments and all of these elimination diets and everything just didn't work for some patients. So I said, well, gosh, that has to be another way. And it was that same question and that same thing. And I, I hope that you know, if nothing else, this, this conversation we're having will allow people to step back and say like, God, it'd be kind of cool if I can have the same playfulness and the same curiosity in my own life. And, you know, as I encounter these weird cases that make no sense, I'll just say, well, gosh, maybe there's a reason for this. I don't know what the hell that reason is, but maybe there's a reason. And one of the practices that I've developed is by allowing myself to be in that uncertain space where I have no idea what the hell the answer is, but I know there's an answer somewhere that I allow myself to be open to receiving answers that I don't know. And sure enough, I mean, sometimes it takes six months, but sure enough, suddenly an answer out of the blue from an email or a patient or whatever comes. And I'm like, oh, darn, whoa, there it is. Cool. I never knew. And, you know, after doing that for 15 years of like, oh, I never knew, you know, it just, it, it creates more and more diversity and more openness to looking at things. And that's at the end of the day, how it can really help people. I see at least. Well, it's such an interesting place to be because we're not taught that in any profession that we go into and we're not taught to be vulnerable. You're not taught to 
say, I don't know, because you're in that profession to figure it out, to be a specialist in that area. And that's the part where when it comes to the human body and human health, it's, you know, everybody's an individual. Everybody lives in a complex world of so many environmental, you know, stressors, both positive and negative. So how can you even in you know, even in a few appointments, whether they're seven and a half minutes, typical, you know, physician, um, you know, patient appointment, or even if you're spending an hour and a half with them, you know, it can sometimes take a lot more time. Like you said, it could take six months to figure it out, but why not let it take six months to figure it out when so many of these people, I know so many of my clients that come to me, they've been battling their illness for 20 years and nobody's been able to figure it out. And so we take that time, but to be and, and I love that there's two pieces. Number one, to be curious, like we have to start encouraging everyone, no matter what the profession, to remain curious because we only know what we know right now. And we know from history that knowledge shifts and changes. And sometimes it's literally wiping out the old and coming in with the new. And other times it's just building upon it. And so we don't know what that's going to, that next, you know, um, aha moment is going to, you know, where it's going to come from or what it's going to look like. And then the other part is that vulnerability, right? Everybody's talking about vulnerability. Brene Brown, the queen of vulnerability, um, but to actually practice it and actually be okay with being vulnerable, I think is still something that we all need to learn how to do. And as well, bring that into medicine, especially um, to allow physicians to say, you know what, I don't know. And where can I look for answers? But there's a part about the name of your business that I love, of your practice, Holistic Kids, because um, I am guilty of when people come to me, I'll be like, food is the answer, you know, like, let's at least try that. Cause most of my, most of my clients have not tried food. They're like, that's the last thing that they're going to um, really change. They're going to try everything else first. But one of the practices that um, I teach all of my clients is to build a whole health team. And it's to look at your condition and say, what are all the possible modalities of treatment that you could look at? Surgery chemo, radiation, um, you know, maybe it's, you know, acupuncture, like you said, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, diet, maybe it's massage or sleep therapy, or, you know, we paint this whole beautiful picture. And then we, then I encourage my clients to, to look at, look at the whole entire whole health team and imagine that they're all there to serve you. Who do you go to first? And allow them to use their intuition. And what usually happens is they're like, well, you know, I don't know what chiropractic care is, but 10 people have told me that that's what I need, right? And then they're all of a sudden being, being willing to like venture into these new places to find those answers. And definitely for some people, I get the expense around that, um, it, you know, it, and the time. And you talked, we talked about this earlier, like, you know, how do we make this standard of care accessible to everybody? And I want to get into that with you, yeah. but I just want to say, um, thank you for being curious and thank you for being vulnerable because it's ultimately, I mean, it's who you are, but it's what allows you to help your patients um, come up with solutions to their health conditions. So yeah. before we go into this next phase of your life that you're in with developing this other arm of your business, 
um, you know, holistic minds. I want to first just go back into even before you got into this. Um, and can we talk a little bit about how, you know, you had to flee Iran when you first came to North America with your family. Um, and can we talk a little bit about that? I'm really curious about how old were you when that happened? I was six. Six. And do you remember that? I do. I and do you remember uh, living in Iran as well? Um, I, I have certain flashbacks, um, certain flashbacks of like our initial home, like my grandparents' home, they had like this big pond. And as a kid, like I, I like that pond was our pool and like every summer we'd be there. So I have a little flashbacks of that. I think one of the memories that uh, will never leave me is we ended up getting visas to leave Iran and my dad didn't. And uh, I remember very vividly that we were getting on the plane in Iran. They had the stairs that go up to the plane. So there weren't like these, you know, terminals that we have here. And I remember going up on those stairs with my mom and looking at my dad uh, being left in the country. And this little part of me saying like, hmm, am I going to see him again? And I was six. And um, it turns out that uh, it was a harrowing year and a half before we could see him again because he tried to escape illegally twice or three times through Turkey, got imprisoned twice, was in prison for, I think, two months one time. And we would go, you know, it's not like you had cell phone coverage back then, right? And it's not like he can send us a text message like, hey, guys, you know, I'm, I'm on the border of Turkey. You know, so th there were literally periods of three to four or five months where we would not hear from him at all. And I mean, like as kids, I mean, I was only six. My brother was three and a half. And, you know, we were at my grandmother's house. So we were, you know, having pool parties and like they were doing a lot to keep us distracted. I, I can't even begin to imagine what, what things were like for my mom and dad. I mean, I've talked to them and I know, but... I think, you know, being young parents and going through that, like, God, uh, a living nightmare. And, you know, the, this is the reality to this day for a lot of people, right? Uh, the, there are a lot of folks that, that have a experience that's not too much unlike what we went through. So it, 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 was, it was a bit of a struggle uh, for us to come. We, we actually were in Italy as, as an asylum kind of refugee, I think for four months, where it was basically my mom and the two of us, we were staying in a hotel for that period of time until we actually got permission to come to the States. So it, it was a bit of a journey. It was a bit of a journey. Yeah. And the reason I asked that question, just wanting to go back is um, I'm just curious about how that influences you and has influenced you as a physician and especially being in California. And, you know, with the work I do, we see that a lot of, um, you know, uh, people of color, you know, Indigenous, uh, First Nation, Aboriginal peoples, you know, they experience chronic disease rates and health issues at much higher rates than, um, you know, white or, you know, um, you know, settler individuals. And so in California, where your, you know, your practice is, you know, are you seeing predominantly, you know, white families, wealthy families, immigrant families, people of color? Um, you know, what, what's the demographic of the people that you're treating? So, you know, I'm lucky in that sense, because 
we we have we started off with a very nice diverse uh, practice and back then you know i was charging a, a very nominal fee to pe have people come in and you know for those folks that came in early on i've never changed their rates um over time what i have found is because what I do takes so much time, like I'm lucky if on a good day, I can see maybe 10 to 12 people. And when I have my complex consults, it grinds me down to like six people a day. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I have looked at is, well, how do I do what I do and make it accessible to more people? And, you know, I, I, I consider myself very, very fortunate because I've, I've had the opportunity to go train with some very smart people. And this has been over the last decade and a half. And, you know, some of these trainings didn't come for free, uh, whether it was time and some of them cost a good bit of money. And there was a lot of time that went into it. But, you know, one of the fundamental issues that I see is to really make a difference in the delivery of holistic and integrative medicine technology has to become a part of it. Yeah. On a, I, I, like I mentioned early on, you know, a good part of what I do is, is deal with very complex cases where, you know, the kid has had X number of years of totally unexplainable symptoms and issues. No one knows what the heck is going on. And, you know, before people come to see me, they fill out a 12 page questionnaire that I take, you know, sometimes half an hour to go through. We talk for an hour and then I spend another half an hour, 45 minutes kind of devising a plan to help them. And then this, we keep this cycle going until we kind of get to the bottom. That much time investment in of itself makes this model of medicine very inaccessible. And as I've really become clear about this, and I've also become clear in terms of the scope of the problems that are there. So going back to what we initially talked about, I, I don't know if you know, but somewhere around 15 to 20% of kids in this country are diagnosed with some kind of mental health problem, which is staggering, right? I mean, it's, it's just mind blowing up to 5% of kids are diagnosed with a conduct disorder, which is basically kids that can't regulate themselves. They're aggressive. They're highly impulsive. They're destructive. They're failing out of school. Like their, their lives are falling apart. 5% of kids in this country have a conduct disorder, you know, upwards of 10% of kids are diagnosed with ADHD and the statistics are similar with anxiety. When you look at these numbers, it's just like, oh my goodness, like the, the, like it's, it's a little bit overwhelming to look at this. And the part that really, um, really irks me and, uh, you know, one of the things that I think really makes this personal for me is as a kid, I, I had over-the-top anxiety. Uh, there were there were adolescent periods where the depression was completely taking over me. So part of why I've come to really be drawn to helping these kids over, you know, other kids with autoimmune diseases and everything is really because I see a lot of myself in the kids I help. But when I look at some of these kids who are really suffering and they're really in pain and they can't control themselves, they can't manage themselves. I look, I'm like, holy Jesus, if this child 
didn't get the help they need, if the families did not know how to find someone to help that child become healthy again, and the family structure in that home fell apart in any way, these are the kids that fall apart down the road. These are the kids that when they fall apart, they end up in prison, they end up doing all kinds of really awful things. Like, I, I look at some of these kids, and I, I adore these children. They are the most beautiful little spirits you can ever imagine. There's so much light inside of them that it, it's just, you, you can see like there's so much goodness inside of them. But these kids are in so much pain their systems are in such a chaotic mess that what shows up on the outside is just this derangement that that is inexplic inexplicable. And when I look at this and I say, like, God, like, if we don't do something to help these kids, they are going to fall apart. And they do. And the statistics show that, you know, if you have if, if a kid has ADHD, really bad ADHD, their likelihood of failing out of school is two to 300 percent higher than the kids that don't. The risk of incarceration is at least double. And you look at these statistics and then you get to a point where you're like, oh, my God, like. We have, like, at least for me, it's like, I have to do something about this. We, we have to make a change. And this has to happen because we can't allow this kind of suffering to continue when there are answers to help resolve it. And this combination of things is what ultimately led me to what you were hinting at, which is holistic minds. Yeah. And holistic minds is basically the creation of an intelligent healthcare information portal that allows families by answering very precise questions to understand why their child is suffering and behaving the way they do. And by precise questions, I mean, like, if your child wakes up in the mornings, you know, do they get grumpy? And do they get dark circles under their eyes? Does your child have this kind like, does your child overthink something to the point where once that event happens to them, they get anxious, like weird questions that no one would ever think of asking, but I've learned how to ask those questions, just because of the mentors that I've had. And these questions then help us start formulating a picture of what's going on within that child. And then through that, we're able to give families guidance in terms of where they need to go, what, and it's kind of what you touched on. Like, you know, if you don't know where to turn, how do you know what answers to go find? If you don't even know a chiropractor can help you with your back pain, how do you know to even go find that person? But if we created a system where by answering the questions, the system could say, hey, you know, these are things you may want to explore with your physician, whether it's going to see a chiropractor, or maybe your kid has a tongue tie, and you need to go talk to the ENT, or X, Y, or Z reasons, we, we start really changing the paradigm of, of integrative healthcare. And instead of it being something that is way too costly, and ultimately way too limited, it becomes something that becomes accessible to everyone. Yeah, and I and I love that because I like you were saying now there's so many practitioners who have studied integrative medicine and functional medicine and we have all of these very qualified people doing this, but it is very um, inaccessible to so many families and a not just because of the price 
but even just letting them know that this exists, right? And also when you go in and it's hard to explain your entire life story in one session to somebody, but if you can give them these tools first where they can start to make the connections themselves, then when they show, you know, when they present for the appointment or the meeting, then at least there's, um, there, there's, there's that launching pad to work from, which I think is always so helpful because, you know, I'm reading a book to, or my daughter's reading the book to me right now, but it's Judy Moody MD. And, you know, it's a kid's book and it's this little girl and she's so fascinated by the human body and anatomy. And MD doesn't stand for medical doctor, it stands for medical detective, you know, so she's this detective. And what she's finding out is that medical doctors have to be detectives and you can't solve a case in you know five minutes like it takes time and if you can get the families to answer a lot of these questions and to get curious about it um, and to be willing to talk about these things that they normally don't get asked or aren't willing to talk about even for example i know one question that i ask every single one of my clients is how do you poop how's your poop looking you know, is it diarrhea? Is it constipation? Like, let's talk about poop. And within two seconds, they're so comfortable talking about it. But when they often go to their physician, their physician hasn't asked them about their poop or their sleep or their, you know, have, do they drink water or what kind of food did they eat? And some of those like really basic questions are the, some often the first to start with. Um, or does the person like to be touched? You know, like that's a question. Are they sensitive to the clothes that they're wearing? And, you know, and I'm sure you have a whole host of questions. So what is it, what would this look like then for families? Because now, of course, because COVID has hit, we are in the world of information overload even prior to COVID, but now digital courses and digital technology and, you know, how, how will this look and what will that look like for families? Like, how will they be able to access this? And how will they so, participate? You know, I, I love what you brought up. And I think information overload is a huge and fundamental problem with where things are today, right? Uh, you're getting bombarded with like, hey, take this course and we'll, you'll figure out your child's or your own health issues. Like do this and everything will be better. Take this supplement and you'll be fixed, you know? And people are just pumping money out on things that, that are just popping up for them. Except... When you apply a good tool in the wrong circumstance, you get a really poor outcome, right? Yeah. You know, chiropractic care, when applied, applied for something that has nothing to do with the structure of the body, does nothing. The chiropractor could be amazing and they may have healed, you know, thousands of people. But when the wrong treatment is applied in the wrong setting or the wrong supplement or the wrong diet is applied in the wrong setting, you get a sometimes an adverse effect, sometimes you get no effect. And this is one of the fundamental issues that keeps people stuck, right? And it keeps doctors stuck too, because a lot of times, you know, unless you take an hour and a half to piece through every single like minute detail of what is going on in the child's life, and most people don't have the time, ability, or, you know, even the training to go through that, we get lost, and I sometimes see that even in our integrative medicine world, where these docs just do these big shotgun approaches, and they do every test under the sun, hoping that they catch what's going on, rather than trying to piece into the, the details of what is there. So what the system does is, because over time, I found that every single issue, for the most part, have a has a pattern, like the tongue ties that we talked about. Tongue ties have a very precise pattern in how they present. 
kids typically have trouble breastfeeding early on when they're one or two years of age. So, you know, going back to what you were talking about with picky eaters, they're the picky eaters that were doing totally fine. And then at the age of three, when their egos kicked in, they're like, you know what, mom, I don't feel like eating these food, tough luck, you know, you're not going to make me. But when they were one or two, they were fine. You know, they, they didn't know any better. So whatever vegetable mom gave them, if they, if if you're carnivores, you know, you give the kids pieces of steak, they'll eat it. They'll eat pieces of chicken. They eat, they eat everything until they decided not to. Then there were those other kids, they didn't breastfeed. When they were one or two years of age, they were spitting most foods out. They would choke and gag. They would have feeding problems, eating problems. And then all of a sudden, they're now the five-year-old that eats four foods and has a host of other issues. Each thing has a very precise pattern. Kids who are exposed to mold, they have a very specific blueprint about them. It's almost like you can sniff it out once you've seen enough of them. Um, Kids with the structural issues, with the tension coming from birth that you talked about, they have a precise pattern. Each presentation has a very precise pattern once you've seen enough of them. And in the case of these kids with behavioral issues, because I've seen so many of these kids, I've, I've kind of mapped out all of the different kind of issues that they have and how it looks. So part of what we're doing through asking these very weird and half the questions that people look at, they're like, why in God's good earth are they asking this super weird question? That weird question actually is us probing into one specific area of one specific imbalance to say, is this thing there or not? And through that, what we're doing is basically mapping, sorry, mapping out how all of these different issues are coming together and then through the system saying, well, these questions were positive, which means this imbalance is there and this imbalance then means this thing is there. And through that, we actually create a, basically a little map of what's going on. We don't diagnose, you know, we're not a medical provider and we're not meant to be a medical provider. We're an educational healthcare portal that is there to help connect families alongside their doctors with precisely the right information they need to be looking at to have that breakthrough in terms of healthcare. So if, for instance, there's a tongue tie, by the time they've answered the question, the system may say, you know what, you may want to talk to your pediatrician about having your kid check for a tongue tie. And we have two or three videos from the country's top experts talking about it. So they can look and say, oh, Jesus, yeah, that's my kid. Or God, wow. Yeah, we've, we, we've gone camping, you know, in the middle of the East Coast. And yeah, my kid did have this funky rash. And oh, yeah, he did have a fever. And shortly after that fever is when he fell apart. Well, gosh, maybe you should think about Lyme. Yeah. So it's asking the right questions to get the right answers to then go after exactly the right information. So whether you're seeing a specialist or talking to someone about a treatment or doing a diet or doing a supplement, everything is done specifically for a reason rather than us just blindly shooting darts, hoping we hit something. And this is like, I have shivers mm -hmm. because I can think of, uh, you know, like, 50 scenarios right now that's happened in our family where we could have used this. Um, we were in Africa. I mean, I did another podcast on this a few, we were in Africa a few years ago and my family came back with Belharzia, schistosomiasis. We swam in a lake that with like with warning signs. 
Um, but, you know, with coming back and getting busy in our life and running our restaurants and our three kids, you know, by the time we got sick with it, we had kind of forgotten all about it. But all the classic signs were there, you know, like looking back in hindsight, but none of the doctors even thought to test us for it. Nobody asked us if we traveled, we forgot to mention that we had, but if we could have gone through something like this, I mean, I bet you schistosomiasis would have come up, boom, go get tested. And instead we ended up in oncology ward um, mm. at Children's Hospital because mm. there was a mass on my daughter's bladder. Mm. It was really just the parasite, the mama and all her eggs as a mass, you know, but of course we're going down that route. And I just, you know, and it, I was fortunate because it was one of my daughters who said, but mom, couldn't it be that parasite from Africa? And I was, boom, went back to the doctors and, you know, and, and I recognize how hard it is for doctors to be able to be that detective in such a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and if, again, I can think of 50 other um, examples where, you know, your system would have been so invaluable and would have saved, like there was one point we went through 17 different doctors to figure out that my one daughter had meningitis, but she had been vaccinated, you know, but one of the doctors are like, it can't be that because she's been vaccinated. Meanwhile, there's five, six, how many different strains of meningitis, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but all the symptoms were there. And so one of the things that we have to remember too, is in addition to being curious, it's in addition to, you know, being vulnerable as a physician. It's also to remember we're human. Physicians mm -hmm. are human beings. And yeah. as much as they can see patterns, it takes time to do that. So having this additional technology to help them with that, I just, I mean, I can see it being, and I can also see it. So I can see it being incredibly useful, but I can also see, you know, what you're on here. You know, some people could also take it to the extreme, you know, yeah. thinking that the technology in the end could be that AI tool that will just do everything in replace of physicians. And at the end of the day, we still need a physician who can touch the hand and feel if it's clammy or who could notice if there's a sag in the, you know, patient's eye, you know, that you might not be able to detect unless you're truly using your eyes and looking yeah. and observing, right? Those, yeah. those human observation skills. So it's really, really fascinating. So is there going to be, um, like, is there a timeline around this? Like, when can I start using this or when can? <laughs> well, uh, we're hoping, we're feverishly building the system as we speak. Uh, we're actually about a year into it. In about six months, we should have our first kind of testable system that we can, like, we'll have our first kind of system that we're privately testing. And if there are families that would want to become part of our beta testers, they're more than welcome to reach out. Uh, but the public kind of uh, debut is probably six to nine months from now. Um, and, you know, it, it, like the, the thing you talked about, like we actually have two questions that ask, like, has your child ever gone swimming in a natural body of water? <laughs> and it's, it's because I've had multiple cases where, you know, they, they had all kinds of weird issues and they went down every single road and it was the kid went swimming in some pond or lake in the middle of Nebraska or wherever. And sure enough, there was some kind of funky parasite that had been missed. So like the, the weird questions that like people would never think of asking just because I've been at this long enough and I've been able to you know, work with some really smart people that are experts in their own area. 
And literally it's like putting 15 of the smartest brains together in one system and each person asking things from their angle and combining it. And you know, one of the things that makes it really remarkable is when you think about what computers do best, they, they do pattern recognition way better than human beings, right? Exactly. I consider myself pretty good, but you know, have me a little sleep deprived because our one and a half year old decided to wake up two times in the middle of the night. You know, my brain is like half dead. So like my good becomes below average in on that day, like, God, I can miss details, even if I spend an hour and a half. And computers can really rocket that to the next level, which makes it super exciting. And it's not about replacing the physicians because that, that human element that you touched on is incredible. And ultimately we want physicians to be the final kind of check of like, yeah, this makes sense, cool, or God, no, this, this is totally off the wrong track. And computers shouldn't be practicing medicine. Computers should be augmenting what's happening and ultimately making it easier for physicians to see all of the things clearly without having to spend two hours. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes this so cool. And it, it, it is very cool because even as I'm thinking about it there, you know, I have many friends who are health practitioners in all different fields. And um, we've often sat around and said, you know, and we did this 15, 20 years ago saying, okay, we need an integrative, you know, an integrated medical center, but how would you even do that? Cause you can't take that patient and have them go from room to room to room, or you can't have all, you know, 12 practitioners in one room with you, you know, do it like that. That's just the feasibility of it. It just, it couldn't work. You would only be able to help a handful of people. Whereas what your system is, it's like, it's like the Airbnb and Uber of, you know, health ultimately to be able to try and like do that pattern recognition to ultimately come out with the best option for your patient. And it's not to say it's the final option, but if you could narrow it down to like a parasite, or if you can narrow it down to a mold toxicity, or for example, I mean, you, you yourself too have been tested for the MTHFR gene mutation. And I, is that correct? Did I get that right? Yeah. 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 And I have um, a gene mutation that's just two steps before the MTHFR gene mutation. So for myself, I do really, really well with eating well-cooked greens from the cruciferous family, but they have to be cooked. They can't be raw. I need like that folic acid. I need that B, the B6. I need, you know, like I really do well with that. And when my body is entrenched with it, then all of a sudden, like my body operates extremely, extremely well. But I didn't know that until I also went down that genetic route. It's, it was a $400 test. And for some families, that's really, really expensive. Yeah. But I can also see how your system could help bring in the knowledge from, for example, genomics or from endocrinology or from, you know, um, you know, hematology or in all of these different areas, and as well as all the other, I hate to call them alternative fields, but, you know, let's call them, you know, the chiropractic, Ayurvedic, mm -hmm. traditional Chinese medicine. And then when you pull that together, all of a sudden, you know, you're just, just so much more, um, you just have a richness that's yeah. there that can help yeah. you get to the solution yeah. faster. Yeah. And um, can we talk mm -hmm. a little, oh, did you want to go ahead? Go no, I was just going to say that, you know, when you really get into the, the human system, it, there's such a 
beautiful and extraordinary complexity. And as you go into that complexity, the further you go, then that's when the simplicity of things start showing up because everything in the body is connected to everything. And, you know, the MTHFR is just one small cog in this huge clock of mitochondria and organs and detox and gut and immune system and so forth. When, when you can see how all of these things, these systems dance with one another and how they interact with one another and how the gut microbes affect the brain and how the brain affects the gut microbes and mitochondria affect these systems. And you see all of those things as one whole, that's when really amazing change starts happening. And that's when you know these cases that seem impossible to really unravel actually become very possible to decipher and heal because it isn't just about let me give one supplement to fix one thing it's really about how do you transform the entire health of that human being at a core core deep level at a cellular level at a physiological level and once you do that it's it's almost like the system itself unlocks and once that happens, there's just this vitality and vibrancy. And I think going back to these kids, like I love working with these kids. Like there's nothing that I love more than working with these children, especially the ones who are really sick. Because once we get to that point, and sometimes it takes a month, sometimes it takes six months, but once we get to that point where their vitality starts coming out and they start healing, the kid who was acting just completely off and aggressive. And we have families where they literally have to lock doors to keep one child from attacking the other. And then four months later, that child that was aggressive and couldn't regulate and was getting kicked out of school and was being labeled with all of these awful things, you know, diagnoses, all of a sudden is this beautiful human being that is shining and just incredible. And that that is the essence of who we are. We, we all have that light within us. And part of what drives me is, is to try to find that light within every child and take away the chaos that distorts it to then allow them to heal and thrive. And I think once we get to that complex model of systems biology, this, this kind of core root medicine, that healing becomes possible for everyone. Yeah, I love you. I can see you actually creating a program for physicians, by the way, not just for families and, you know, with kids who have, um, you know, different issues that, you know, they need a medical detective behind, but I can see you creating a course for physicians because you've touched on all of these key points that you need to be. And this last piece as well, it's about seeing Physicians need to see that beautiful potential that exists within every human being, within every child. And, you know, often, you know, parents can come in frazzled and, you know, my kid is out of control. And to have a physician, though, that can see your child, like really see them, you know, for their potential, I think is just another quality that, again, like, I don't know if you can teach that to physicians, but to have that belief and that trust that we are all innately, you know, wonderful and good and, you know, we can be healed. Um, and having that hope there, I think is really important. And, and I think it's a true hope. It's not a false hope. I think it's, it's legitimate. And you remind me when you're speaking to you about, there's an amazing family psychologist out of Australia named Kim John Payne. 
And I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but there's so many similarities between what you've said and his work that he's been doing for over 30 years, 30 or 40 years now in the field. And he has a wonderful book called Simplicity Parenting. And so when he gets families that comes to him, you know, that they're, my kids are bouncing off the wall, they're aggressive, they're, you know, acting out, but like in ways that are like beyond just a kid being a kid, he just goes straight into the family with black garbage bags. And what he does is he goes to the kitchen and he takes all of those foods that have all of the food coloring and dyes and preservatives and those go in the trash. Then he goes into their bedrooms and he takes all of those toys, all of the plastic toys that are off gassing, all of the toys that are creating too much noise and too much stimulation and puts them in the plastic bag. And the only thing the kids get are handkerchiefs and clothespins, right? Because it's amazing what kids can do with handkerchiefs and clothespins. And then, you know, so he addresses the food, he addresses the noise in the house. So it's those chronic stimulants um, that for some kids, when they're too sensitive initially, it's too much for them to even have hardwood floors. So sometimes he just lays down carpets, which is mm -hmm. counterintuitive, right? But it's so that the sounds aren't ricocheting. And then he looks at, um, uh, he looks at the other things that maybe the child is missing, right? So it's that quiet time. It's the having parents read to the kids. And so there was a part of me that, and, and I'll just finish, wrap up that piece with saying that often what he says is that the parents come back in a week or two and they're like, we didn't have to give our kids any medications. In fact, the kids are now off their medications. Mm -hmm. And these kids are exhibiting no signs of ADD, ADHD, aggressive behavior. So I'm really curious too about some of the work that you do is, you know, can it be that simple that what the child needs is just maybe time in nature? They just need to be kids and they need to let out their, their, their childishness and childish behaviors in ways that kids maybe a hundred years ago would have done. And I'm curious about what role that plays in the work that you're doing with families. I mean, absolutely. And I think too many kids these days don't have opportunities to be kids. And there's too much media, there's too much stimulation, there's too many processed foods, there are too many chemicals, there's too much sugar. So all of those things, you know, without a doubt, uh, can be a problem. And, you know, one of the fundamentals I, I teach our families is like, you know, if you're feeding your kid chemicals and, you know, crap and sugar, like don't expect them to behave. And uh, I make the analogy for families, you know, if, if you give your kid sugar, you're you're basically tripping up their systems, and you might as well be giving them amphetamines. Like if if you want your kid tweaking out, um, give them sugar. And a lot of times when I present it like that, they're like, "Oh Jesus!" Like I, I had no idea that you know this was having that kind of an effect. But I think that that is kind of the foundational level, right? Those are the things that we want all families to be aware of. There are layers upon beyond that where families have done diet and they've done these things and are like, I have no idea what's going on with my kid. They're, they are freaking out of their mind. And, you know, like they say, my kid flips from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde, you know, or Mr. Hyde to Dr. Jekyll, where all of a sudden my kid who's lovely and kind and a good human being is now just aggressive and can't manage themselves and they're hurting me, they're hurting my other kid. And there's more of these kids than we can possibly imagine out there, like hundreds of thousands, if not millions. It's just, we, 
we're so distracted by our society, by all of these other things and all of the infighting and all of these, you know, concerns that we, we are not even beginning to understand really the epidemic of childhood behavioral and conduct disorders and mental health issues that are there. It's an epidemic. We're just not seeing it because we're too busy with all of these other things. So what are you, I, you must have the theories as well as the science um, behind, you know, the causes for this, you know, and you did say it earlier in the podcast, this epidemic. So, you know, I think about, you know, the mass shootings that are happening at such, you know, rampant, um, you know, rates and, you know, what are some of your theories behind or, or the things that you've actually seen directly, uh, the cause behind this? So, Typically, when we see aggression, when there is extreme impulse control, when there is this kind of explosiveness to the human being, and I, I can only speak to the children, it's not like I, I treat adults. So in the children I take care of, when I see this explosive nature to them, where the kids literally just explode out of their own minds, and they have these extreme explosive aggression bouts or whatever else, that is almost always an inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. And all oftentimes to many a times that inflammatory response is coming from lime mold strep or some kind of a toxin or exposure that is tripping the immune system up in an in incredible way. And, and now the NIH and Stanford and all kinds of different institutions are really paying attention to this. So if you look up PANDAS or PANS, like there, there's a whole body of information talking about this, where these, these kids' ability to regulate their nervous systems is completely off. Like they, they have these extreme bouts of OCD, they have extreme bouts of rituals, like Everything about their neurological pattern is completely logical, but that's different than other things. So I think in the case of these, these poor people who, who are doing really horrific things, I think if we were to look, we would probably find in their systems one of these big inflammatory triggers, presuming there was no horrible you know, childhood trauma or sexual abuse or so, any of these god-awful things that happens to some people that they just can't recover from. Yeah, no, and I'm glad that you brought that up too, because, um, you know, I recently read an article where a lot of psychologists are seeing, um, you know, these teenagers and young adults who haven't had any of these significant traumas, like the rapes and the child abuse and the, you know, you know, growing up in a family of alcoholics or things like this, but they're still exhibiting the same post-traumatic stress behaviors um, mm -hmm. and symptoms. And so, um you know, it's seeing these micro stressors, you know, over long periods of time, like whether it's the Lyme or the mold or the strep. And it's the same thing with chronic conditions like diabetes and heart disease. And I mean, they're all inflammatory conditions. And you remind me as well of the, um, the book by the uh, journalist, um, uh, Brain on Fire, 
And you see her symptoms come out as being, you know, you know, paranoia and and compulsion and then aggression. And then she ends up in a psychiatric psychiatric ward. And it turns out she has inflammation in half of her brain, you know, and it took a dog. And like you said, it comes back to being, it was a very simple test that was able to diagnose it, but it took a schwack of, you know, some of the best neuroscientists who like really couldn't come up with any other solution other than admit her to a psychiatric ward for potentially the rest of her life. And then it took one neuroscientist who said, no, actually, like, let's look and see if, if it's potentially inflammation. And sure enough, it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so what do we do? what do you do or what can the families do? And especially for other physicians that are hearing this and who might be understanding this for the first time, because everybody talks about inflammation, but can you explain that mechanism of of action around the inflammation as it relates to these presentations of these symptoms? You know, I don't, at least in the studies that I have come across, I don't know if we truly understand all of the mechanisms through which inflammation causes aggression or some of these things. We know that inflammation shuts down certain uh, biochemical pathways. So there are chemical pathways that have to do with dopamine and serotonin and ultimately epinephrine and norepinephrine. And when you have inflammation, you start getting distortions in, in the chemistry of the brain. So serotonin goes down, dopamine goes down, epinephrine levels start shifting. And this distortion starts causing some of the psychiatric, psychological manifestations that we see. But then there are actual changes to the neuronal patterns so that the nerve cells themselves are sometimes hit and we start getting for instance changes in dopamine regulation so a lot of these kids what you see is this weird choreoform movement we call it where they're, they're just kind of moving or they're having ticks and their bodies are just constantly moving which has to do with you know some of those dopamine centers their, their entire sensory pathways change. So a lot of these kids can't tolerate sound. They can't tolerate smell. Uh, they're, they're trying to claw themselves out of their own bodies because like clothing on their bodies is extremely uncomfortable for them. And this goes to some of the core kind of cerebellar pathways where the core primitive brain actually changes its functioning. The limbic system starts changing in its effects. Why these things happen, at least as far as I can tell and the data that I've come across, I don't know if we're smart enough to actually truly know that just yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think in 10 to 20 years, our science will start catching up with some of this. You know, the fact that the NIH has said like, no, gosh, this is real. Like this, this is really happening. I think it's a huge first step. And this is only in the last, I think, two to five years that the NIH actually gave recognition to this. So we're still quite a bit away from knowing all of the mechanisms. And I I imagine it is way more than one single mechanism in each chronic exposure or toxin has a different way of affecting the brain mold. And, you know, mold has a different effect. And even the subtypes of mold, because they produce different toxins can affect different parts of the brain. Lyme and the Lyme co-infections have different effects. Strep has different effects. So it's, really complicated. And I certainly don't think there's one mechanism at play. And I, I wish 
I knew all of it. I certainly am just beginning to scratch the surface myself. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that honesty. And it's true, like we're still, um, you know, within the field of neuroscience. I mean, you know, we all go to doctors thinking they have all the answers, but in the field of neuroscience, even the neuroscientists are like, we don't even know if we understand like 3% of how like the whole entire brain works and, and, and its relationship to the body and our endocrine system and absolutely everything else. So um, it is, we're still at the forefront of this and understanding it, but I know for myself with our clients, like when I, you know, see families that have kids that ADHD, that have ADHD or ADD um, or other, you know, especially anxiety and panic attacks and, you know, the diet we teach, it's, it's ultimately a very nutrient dense, low caloric, but nutrient, nutrient dense, like you are flooded with nutrients and they're, they're not the, there's none of the inflammatory triggers in there. Gluten is not that we leave gluten out because, you know, we have to or want to. It's just actually most of the nutrient dense foods that we're giving them just don't happen to contain the gluten. So we don't even have to worry about it. It's kind of a, a mute point. And um, dairy is just not part of it. Only again, because we're looking for the most nutrient dense, low caloric foods, you know, which end up being the fruits and vegetables and whole grains. And, you know, they eat this. And so, you know, and the effect of that is the inflammation disappears. And then what we see are all the symptoms disappear. Like it's just a boom, 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 boom. And we see it, especially with, you know, we, I see a lot of young kids who are like between the ages of 18 to 25 who suffer from such severe panic attack, you know, disorders and anxiety disorders that they can't leave the room. Some of them haven't even left the room for like a year before they eventually mm. like make their way to me. And then all of a sudden, a few weeks later, their life is like completely different. And again, it's eliminating the inflammation, but it's the same thing with my clients who have heart disease and diabetes. You know, we eliminate the inflammation by giving them nutrients and, and all of a sudden their conditions, all of a sudden their symptoms are gone and they're off their meds. And so, um, you know, and I do like that, you know, the NIH and as well as almost every single university that's out there right now, you know, on their websites, medical institutions are, are announcing that it is inflammation. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's the beauty of what you teach, right? That you, you build the foundation of the human being with good nutrients. And, you know, through that, you change their microbiome and the gut bacteria and you change the gut and you change the immune system. Just you, you start supporting detox. You know, a lot of these people can't detoxify because they haven't pooped in a week, yeah. you know, so by, by just changing some of these things and using food is, is literally the concrete that you pour into the foundation to then build a house on. Uh, there's so much that can be done, which is why the work that you're doing is so invaluable in, in this time, especially. Yeah. And I love that you brought up the poop piece because yesterday I just had a client who, you know, she's only been doing our program for a week and she hasn't had a normal poop in 20 years and she's mm. in her late seventies and wow. hasn't had a normal bowel wow. movement in 20 years. And for the first time she did. And to me, like, I actually started crying because I was like, oh my gosh, this woman, like how she must feel to, mm -hmm. um, you know, experience that. But you also give that to your patients as well. And I love the, the work that you're doing. It's so, so important, especially as we're just at the forefront of understanding all of this. So how do you... Um, 
how do people work with you right now, especially given that it's COVID, uh, especially, and we don't know, you know, in California, it looks like things are getting better um, and people are venturing out more, but how can patients work with you? Well, uh, I mean, right now we're really not in a place to fully launch the system. Uh, I think if if families or people are interested, we would love for them to contact us and I'd be happy to share that contact information. So that way we can start creating a a wait list. Um, We want to get the system out and we want to get it out as quickly as possible. And I realized that you know, myself doing it as one person uh, is not enough. And we're actually in the process of looking for data scientists and looking for others that can actually help us build this system. So if there's anyone out there that's listening that happens to be really like my, my partner is an incredible tech wizard. He is not a hardcore artificial intelligence data scientist. So we're looking to build our team and we're looking for people that would be interested in helping us uh, to start beta testing it. And, you know, people who are willing to be patient with us as we work through all of the bugs to get it to a point where it's it's prime time. But I'll share uh, the contact information with you and those that are interested can email us and contact us. Amazing. And then for other, you know, families and who have children who, you know, we, you've talked about all the potential conditions that they may or may, um, you know, may or may not have the Simpsons they have, they can go to holistic kids and do they have to be located in California to be able to work with you? How does that work? Uh, We're doing some remote consultations. It's very tricky. We do generally need someone who has a local provider that we can work alongside because we can't provide medicine in every state. So uh, if people are remote and they have someone locally that could be their, you know, local, you know, foot on the ground. Yeah, we'd be happy to work with them and provide guidance in that sense. Amazing. And let's leave our audience with, uh, especially parents out there that are listening to this, because I know that, you know, many of them will have resonated with everything that you talked about. Many of them will be thinking about people within their community um, that have children, you know, that um, you might, might have spoken about some of the conditions that they might have. So what is the first thing uh, that a parent can do? if they feel that they have a child that might be exhibiting some of these behaviors and where they know that that child has an opportunity to maybe be alleviated from some of those symptoms, what's the first thing that they should do? I think if you're just getting started, really the fundamentals are food, you know, cut sugar out, cut preservatives out, cut food colorings out. Make sure they're eating wholesome foods that don't disrupt their blood sugar. And that alone may change, you know, 10, 20% of the picture, sometimes more. Sometimes it changes the entire picture. So I think at, at a core foundational level, start with food. And then, you know, from there, then you can get into all of the nitty-gritty details of sleep and tongue ties and mold and gut issues and mitochondria and so forth. But nutrition is foundational. And I'd say, you know, at the very least, just start with the very basics. Yeah, I love that because in that way, parents don't have to go out there and start ripping up their walls and, you know, looking for mold or checking for, you know, remembering every camping trip that they went on and Mm -hmm. to see if, you know, there was potentially a tick. 
No, I think that is, um, well, of course, I love that. Our podcast is mm-hmm. called Eat Real to Heal. So you know, <laughs> I'm going to start with food as well. But um, it's always nice to get that validation as well. And just for parents mm-hmm. to know that don't leave it to the to be the last thing that you try you know start with the food because you're eating three meals a day and snacks anyway so you know it's um it may not be easy to do because as you know if you don't know how to chop a potato or if you don't know what a head of cabbage looks like you do have to learn those things and i know sometimes in our field we assume that people know what food is but you know for any families out there that if you know, you're wondering what that looks like. There's so many resources and I'll be sure to include those resources, you know, with really simple cookbooks that you can follow that, you know, you don't need to be a five-star chef to to prepare really healthy meals for your family. You can keep them really, really simple, Um, especially for kids who have sensory disorders, you know, um, you know, sometimes just, you know, trying a cooked carrot versus a raw carrot or um, something like and just testing it out on kids. I often say for parents, um, you know, if your kids don't like vegetables, you got to try it 19 different ways, 19 different times, and your child will eventually love Amen. vegetables. And it's just figuring out what texture that they like, what flavor yeah. that they like, yeah. but don't give up because it truly is medicine your food is your medicine yes well it has been such an honor having you on the show there's Mm -hmm. so many other topics that um you know i would love to dive into and you know i tend to fall in love with all of my guests that we have on there because you're just such a wealth of information and i just appreciate you taking the time to share that um with our audience with our listeners so thank you so much for your time on the show thank you for having me and uh, it's been a pleasure and thank you for you know taking the the, this information into the world and helping people see things differently and, and helping us transform the world into something better for more people Yeah, well, it's all going to be done through storytelling. So you've shared your story today. Mm -hmm. And I know you have so many more stories to share. So I look forward to um, helping you get your stories out there for sure. Thank Thank you. you. Okay, bye, everyone. See you on the next show. Again, another incredible human being on our planet doing incredible work to bring health and healing not only to kids but their entire families which ultimately resonates out into building healthy and resilient communities so you know where to find dr k check out the show notes below and definitely do not wait a second longer before you start seeking help from holistic practitioners who want to help create healthy kids. Dr. K is definitely one of those individuals. And before we go, I just want to make sure that you head on over to our website at 22millionstrong.ca and you also follow what we're doing, making a documentary with InLight Films. InLight Films, they are an incredible group that they make documentaries and films that heal the soul. So the minute we met them, it was a perfect fit and we hired them right away because they have the magic. They know how to bring all the incredible work that we've been doing to the screen and to be able to hopefully inspire more and more people around this globe to take charge of their own health, to not wait to turn their health around, not wait to reverse the chronic disease, to learn about food as medicine, to learn about the food of your ancestors, because guess what? The food of your ancestors kept 
your ancestors healthy for millions and millions of years. And we need to revert back to those beautiful, wholesome, organic, unrefined, unprocessed foods that your ancestors ate so that you can reclaim your health reclaim your life and that's what this documentary is about it's about my journey finding out all about food as medicine I was like you I was born into this world not really knowing about it nobody was teaching me this in school my doctors definitely were not preaching this and now I've been fortunate fortunate enough to meet enough humans to be able to dive into the research, to be able to study this extensively over the last 20 plus years. And I'm gonna take you through my own journey, finding out and discovering food as medicine so that you can also start and continue your journey towards optimum health. So you know what to do, folks. What do I always say in every show? Share this podcast with someone that you know, someone that you love, because Dr. K and his message and the work that he does, the work that he does might just be what a loved one in your world needs to be able to turn their health and their life around. So press forward, press share, and email this on, text it. You know what to do. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Stay tuned for yet another episode of the Eat Real to Heal podcast next week. Bye.